Well, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy by Tolkien. You don't have to be to catch the point of this, this story. If, if you're not, though, I commend it to you. It's a, yeah, a masterful por- portrayal of all kinds of stuff. But let, me, let me take you to the, the, final, the final scene where you, you have in the, in the return of the king, there's a, there's a final battle that has just been completed. And the ring, which is kind of the, 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 the focus of the, the whole story, this, it's the source of evil, of, of war, of death. Everyone's clamoring to get it and to get the power that it possesses. Well, it has finally been destroyed. And the battle was tremendous. And the, one of the main characters, Sam, um, is knocked out in the midst of the battle. And he, he wakes up and he he's, seems to be surprised that he's alive. And he's also surprised that he sees Gandalf, who's wizard guy, who's kind of with him through the whole deal. And what he says to, to Gandalf, after realizing that the ring has been destroyed, the source of evil has been, been done away with, he, he asks a question, which I think resonates with all of our hearts. He, he asks him this, he says, is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? Meaning now that this this ring is gone, now that it's finally done away with, will all of the sad things that have for so long felt so final, so invincible, that have really impacted every area of, of his entire life, he says, Will they come untrue? Meaning, will they, will they stop? Will I finally know peace? Will I finally know joy now that this ring has been done away with? And Gandalf replies, and I'm just going to read a, a paragraph from the story. Gandalf says, a great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then the wizard laughed. And the sound was like music. His laughter was like music or like water in a parched land. And as San listened, the thought came to him that he had not heard laughter. The pure sound of merriment for days without count. He hadn't remembered the last time he had really heard laughter. And it fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. His tears ceased. His laughter welled up and laughing. He sprang from his bed. He said, how do I feel, he cried. Well, I I don't know how to say it. I feel, I feel, he waved his arms in the air. I feel like spring after winter and sun on the leaves and like trumpets and harps and all the songs I have ever heard. What he's saying is he says, I I feel alive. The shadow of darkness is gone and now hope has come. What he fought for his whole life has been realized. Now the hope, the hope of laughter that won't be quenched. Of the hope of every song that's ever been sung, fulfilled. Tears shed no more.
Well, that story and Sam's question, which really is found in just about every song, every story, every movie that's ever made in one way, shape, or form, is the very thing that Revelation chapter 21 addresses. Because we, like Sam, all wonder, don't we? Will sadness be forever? Will sorrow ever cease? This week, I just went through the membership directory and I was looking at your faces and just thinking of how many things we've endured. Some public, many more private. The diseases, the oppression, the broken hearts, the miscarriages, the betrayals, the loss of friends, the wounds, the death. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Revelation 21 says it will. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adored for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the, spr the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. It's kind of hard to summarize a text that is as glorious as this for a man like me who's never been there <laughs> to tell you any more than what John has told us. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to try. So here we go. <laughs> if we're going to try and summar up, summarize or sum up what this text is saying to us, it's this, that God will dwell with his people and heal all their sorrows. God will dwell with his people and heal all their sorrows. 
One of the things we've learned in our study in the book of Revelation is that everything that really is in this book, some over 600 times, are, is alluded to in the, in the Old Testament. And you're going to hear me referencing the Old Testament as we go through here, but, but I encourage you, maybe in December, to try and read through the, the prophet Isaiah. Take a couple chapters a, a day and try and maybe make it through there as a preparation even for consideration of the, the incarnation. But you're going to find so much of what we see in these final couple chapters in the prophet Isaiah and his writings, particularly chapter 25, 35, and then chapter 40 through the, the end of the book. It's, it's like if you wrung out this section, you would just get a big puddle of Isaiah. Everything that the prophet said is, is coming to pass here. I think the way we're going to do this this morning is we're just going to, we're going to walk through and observe things from the text here and then conclude with, with two areas of, of application. Let's look again here at verse 1 where we see that a new creation is coming. A new creation is coming, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. John here receives a fresh vision. Again, he says, I saw. This is the 33rd of 35 times that John says, I saw something. Remember, this is a vision. He's beholding and he's recording it here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And what he sees is a new heaven and a new earth. This is striking, of course, because the Bible begins with the explanation of, of, of history with the first creation. Genesis 1.1, the beginning of the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the Bible begins with the creating of a heavens and an earth, and then the Bible ends with a recreation, if you will, a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the earth, first earth were once united. God and man, in the opening chapters of Genesis, we see enjoyed one another face to face. They had joy and fellowship and peace. But of course, Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan and they disobeyed God and they sinned, which ushered in this curse from God where God gave the world and humanity and all of the history that we have ever known since over to sin. Pandora's box, if you will, was opened and sin ravished everything. I remember a number of years ago, I was, I was reading through Genesis, and I made it through chapters 1 and 2. It was this glorious picture, right? No sin, nothing but joy. God and people together in harmony with their God. It was perfect. And I remember not wanting to go to Genesis 3 because I knew what happened there with sin and how the rest of the Bible is filled with the story of human history of death and sorrow. You see, that, that entering in of sin in the first heaven and the first earth is why there is cancer and why there is corruption. It's why there is poverty and why there is oppression. It is why there is slander and why there is sickness. It's why there is fear and why there is failure. It's why there is disease and why there is death. They are all effects of sin, the curse that has come upon this earth. Well, immediately after Adam and Eve 
sinned, God promised in Genesis 3 that he would send a deliverer to come and to crush the serpent's head, this one who had tempted them toward evil. This one who would come, who would rescue and redeem people and to fix the whole cosmos, fix the creation. And that promise echoes all the way through the Bible that somebody's coming to fix the world, somebody's coming, somebody's coming, somebody's coming. That someone, of course, is Jesus. Even in Isaiah, chapters 65, 17, he says, Behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. God foretells of a day when he will remake the world through this promised Messiah. And the former things that, that were marred by sin will be forgotten forever. Because God's going to fix it. Israel's return from Babylon foreshadowed that new creation. Of course, Jesus' resurrection from the dead inaugurated the beginning of the end. And here we see the new heaven and the new earth to which it all pointed and to which every heart has ached for since the day that we exited Eden. Now this, this passing away of the first heaven and the first earth isn't complete destruction or total annihilation. He isn't making all new things. He's making all things new. So what we have here is a, a renewal, a transformation, a purification of the world that was or the world that is now to make it a world that shall be like what the original world was even intended to be. God did this in a smaller sense in Noah's day with a worldwide flood of, of water. 2 Peter chapter 3 says that that was a picture of the final judgment of when God will flood the world with fire. Listen to this from 2 Peter 3. By the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire. So the same word that created the world, God is going to speak another word that is going to bring fire. Being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count, count slowness, meaning there's people who are going to be mocking and be like, oh yeah, Jesus is coming back. Well, we've been waiting on that for a while, haven't we? Why does God take so long? Well, Second Peter says it's, he's being patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. This, by the way, I think is what was pictured in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. So the last time when we were in Revelation uh, 20 together, just before the final judgment of all people, we saw this. Then a great white throne in him who was seated on it, and from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. I think this is the, 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 when the fire comes, if you will, and is purifying all things and leaves people to stand with nowhere to hide before God. That's what's happening here. The first earth and the first heaven had, had passed away. Now, why would God flood the world with fire? Well, as we just said, to purify it. But why does he want to do that? Why would God do that? Huh. Because sin will not win in God's universe. In the end, 
there will be no trace of sin's infection. None of it will remain. All of its implications will be eradicated. All of its consequences will be conquered. All of its destruction will be destroyed. God will make all things new. There's an old poem called God's Acre. It's about a graveyard. What the author wants us to do is every time we see a graveyard, what we're supposed to think is that is God's acre. Acre of what? It's a plot of land where acorns are put into the ground until one day they will spring up to oaks because God will win. Every grave will be opened. Every bit of trace of sin, as the old Christmas song, as far as the curse is found, he's going to fix it all. Sin will not win in God's universe, which is the idea behind this, this statement that the sea was no more. You see, in Jewish thinking, this is again metaphorical here, that the sea represented evil and chaos and disorder. You can see this particularly in Isaiah 57 and 65 and in places in Job where the sea is, is the, the place of where sea monsters are and where um, yeah, idolatrous cra- uh, trade occurred and where uh, yeah, there was associations with, with fear and threats and death. That's how Jewish people saw the sea. So what God is saying is that all the sources of of affliction, all the threats in the old world will be done away with once and for all. So will there be bodies of water in the new heaven and the new earth? Most certainly. We're going to see that even later as we go on more in the unpacking of chapter 21 and 22. But, But the idea of the sea, that dark, murky place from which evil springs in the Jewish mind, will be gone. Nothing to haunt you anymore. For those of you who have reoccurring nightmares, there's a day coming when there'll be no more. All of this, of course, is a a parallel with the, the resurrection of Jesus and his defeating the grave. He's the first fruits of the resurrection, of a great harvest that is to come at the end of the age when all who have trusted in Christ will be raised and ushered into this new heaven and new earth to experience life evermore. God promises he will fix the world. John sees God's promise fulfilled here. The first heaven and earth is gone and the new, remade, refined, purified heaven and earth has come. In verse 2 we see A radiant bride is readied. A radiant bride is readied, verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as the bride adored for her husband. John sees a, a city. It's called here a holy city, which is not typically how you think about cities. When you think of New York or Vegas or Miami or Washington, D.C., holiness is probably not the first thing that comes to mind. Well, this place is unlike any place you've ever been. It's a holy city. The new Jerusalem stands in contrast to the earthly Jerusalem, which 
of course, was so often given over to idolatry. But it was a shadow of this city to come. Galatian, in Galatians, Paul calls this new Jerusalem the Jerusalem above. Hebrews 12 calls it Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Now what's striking about this city is that John here, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is using language to describe the new creation both as a, as a place and as a people. It's a place and a people at the same time, which highlights, again, this is metaphorical. The new creation is like a city. It's alive with energy and hope, right? But it's also a collection of, of people described here as a radiant bride who's all decked out for the day in which she's going to be united with her bridegroom. Next week we'll see Revelation 21.9 where the angel will say, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. This, this bride, this city, this is the church. It is all of God's people from all time, Jews and Gentiles, united together under all of the promises that God has made to his people from Genesis all the way to the end. They are all gathered under the grace of God here as the bride of Christ, this one body, Jews and Gentiles together, his people, where he will dwell with them forevermore. Now, where do we see this in the Old Testament? All over the place, but particularly in Isaiah chapter 52 and 61, but especially in Isaiah 62. Listen to this, Isaiah 62, 4. Speaking of to Israel, he says, You shall no more be termed forsaken, which she was because of her sin. And your land shall no more be determined desolate, which it was because she went into exile because of her sin. But you shall be called, My delight is in her. And your land shall be called married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. The picture is that the land of Jerusalem, the land of Israel, was supposed to be a place where God and his people dwelt together and enjoyed fellowship, but because of their sin, they were out of the land. Under, he says, you like idols? Go get some idols. And they were under the oppression of idols. They weren't together, but God in his mercy brought them back as a picture of the restoration that he is bringing back through Christ. He says, that's all an image for you that I brought you who was unfaithful back to me because I wanted you, the Lord says to us through John here. Which I think is utterly amazing. <laughs> that, that God, he calls his people a bride. A people long known for our sins and our unfaithfulness who delighted in immorality and idolatry, but now he delights in her, not because of her sin, but in spite of it. If you're in Christ, God loves you in spite of you, in spite of me. The picture here is that God will hear her cry for forgiveness and he will wash her clean. He will cancel her debt. He will draw her close to himself, and he will rejoice over her. 
Zephaniah 3.14 foretells of this same sort of scene where God receives his bride, the church, for himself. Listen to the way he speaks of it. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's forgiven you if you're in Christ. If you've turned from your sin and trusted in Christ who is crucified for you, that was, this is about you who was raised for your justification. If you trusted in him, this is for you. He says, he has cleared away your enemies. The Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Can you imagine that? Never having to lock your door again. Never having to be careful when you go out again. Never being afraid of being hurt or betrayed again. Trusting. Free. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. This is still Zephaniah 3. Let your hands, uh, let not your hands grow weak. Listen to this. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He God will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He, God, will exalt over you with loud singing. Take that and that blows up every theological category that I have. I like it makes sense for us to sing to God because of how amazing he is. But it says here, he's going to sing over us. What will that be like? It feels so strange and awkward where I'm like, I, I, feel, I understand what Peter meant when he's like, Lord, don't wash my feet. I should wash your feet. And he's like, uh-uh. I'm going to do this for you because I love you. What would it be like on that day when the Lord's like, you know, as you get a guitar, Gabriel, give me a guitar. Here we go. You're going to sing to it. I don't know what that is. It's just going to sing over us. Or we'll be like, Lord, we don't deserve that. And he'll say, no, no, no. I don't sing over you because you deserve anything. I sing over you because I love you. Just because I love you. I made you, I saved you, and I've kept you as my own forevermore. This holy city, this beautified bride, is presented here in stark contrast to the unholy city of Babylon that we saw a few weeks ago. That unholy city is referred to as the unfaithful prostitute. Well, this bride is, is different because God has made her different. Here we have the new, renewed world that will be filled with the new, renewed community of believers in their perfect, glorified bodies given especially to be able to radiate his glory and endure his glory forevermore. By the way, one of the, and we'll come back to this throughout this text, but what this text is intended to do is to help you to keep trusting. So you'll remember in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, this, this book began with the church imperfect, right? Where you've got these churches that are struggling with sin and against persecution and now it, it concludes here with the church perfected 
We see a picture of the glorified bride here and God enjoying her and us enjoying him. And Revelation, this whole book, is given to motivate the church today to diligently purify herself and to prepare herself and to persevere in faithfulness because that long a day, that long awaited day is fast approaching. And we, we are intended now to, to respond by saying, well, then I don't want anything that, that's going to make me n- not pleasing to him on that day. It's supposed to help us to resist temptation. And what, 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 what makes this new heaven and this new earth so amazing is that God's there. Look at verse 3. God will dwell with us. God will dwell with us. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. John once again hears this voice from the throne. This is the third time in the book of Revelation. We don't know whether it's God himself or it's an angel who's saying it, but, but the voice says, behold, which means to look, fix your eyes upon this, this, this dwelling place of God is with man. The dwelling place of God is with man. Again, if this is the first time that you're you've ever been to, to church, this is the first time you've ever even opened a Bible, seen anything, this, this may make no sense to you, this idea of God dwelling with, with man. But, but again, this is, this is where the Bible begins. God used to dwell with his people. He created us, placed us in the Garden of Eden, the place of delight. And what made Eden such a delight is that God was there, that we were with him, we knew him face to face unhindered relationship with him. We spoke to him and enjoyed him and all of his provisions. It was the land of joy and peace. But then sin ravished that. We were sent out from the Garden of Eden, away from the presence of the Lord. And the rest of human history, humanity has had this, this ache in the heart, longing to be back with him. Even those who don't believe in him, that's what they're ultimately aching for and looking for. And we've entered into a world now where we sin and where we're sinned against and where the, the effects of sin abound. And, and what happens down here is sometimes we can, get, we can get confused about what the real problem is. So the fundamental problems in life right now are not, it's not abortion, it's not racism, it's not health care, it's not immigration, it's not disease, it's not divorce, it's not immorality, it's not corruption, it's not oppression. Those are all symptoms of the problem. You see, the, the problem, what we need, what we ache for, is we need God. We need God and we don't understand who we are apart from Him. And all of these effects that we feel all around us are intended to point us to the fact that this world is not the way it was supposed to be. And we want somebody to come and to fix it. Well, the good news is that God desires to be with us. In the Old Testament, he made a dwelling in Israel. The word tabernacle, it means dwelling. 
where his glory dwelt among us. And then Jesus, John 1.14, the Son of God, became flesh and he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. In Jesus, God came near to die for our sin and to rise and to return. And John hears the announcement that God will soon be with his people and his people will be with their God again. The fundamental problem of life will be fixed. That God and his people will dwell together face to face. You see, what makes heaven so amazing is that we will dwell with God. Which might be good for us to think for just a moment. When, when you think of going to heaven, so if you do indeed believe that there is a heaven, a land for those who have trusted in, in Christ, when you think of going to heaven, why do you want to go there? Why do you want to go to heaven? Is it to escape the madness of this life? You just kind of want this to be over with. Is it so that you won't be in pain any longer? Is it maybe to see a loved one who died in Christ? Is it maybe to hold that miscarried child that you never met? All of those things are good and right and appropriate longings. Those are good things. And those are, we have a great hope if we are in Christ for those things. But those desires are ultimately incomplete if they are not centered primarily upon that we get to be with God. What makes heaven amazing is that we get Him, we get to know Him. We get to see him face to face. And I, I, don't, I don't say that to, to, to shame you or to, yeah, to, to make you feel bad if, if right now all you can feel is that you just want stuff to stop here or you're just so overwhelmed with missing someone that you want to be with them. Again, those are good longings, but it, may it move us to pray, to ask God to help us to want above everything him. Revelation 21 is intended to provoke hope in his unhindered presence, in his unrestrained love toward us, in his undiluted glory around us, and true unquenchable happiness because we're with him. And when we're with him, God will heal our hurts. God will heal our hurts. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. One of the most precious promises in all of Scripture. A tender truth that is in, ought to make us pause and to wonder, what will it be like to have all of your tears Tended to by God. I mean, this imagery is striking. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Have you ever been comforted by someone who loves you? 
my wife loves our children. And she is a bit more sensitive to their needs than I am. And it has been, it's been so instructive for me to watch her over the years. So many times when they'll be crying about something and she will tenderly hold them while they're crying and look into their tear-filled eyes and listen to them and wipe tears away and say, it's going to be okay. God will do that for you if you're in Christ. He will draw you to himself, look in your tear-filled eyes, and assure you that none of the tears that you have ever cried have gone unnoticed. No pain was ever wasted. God does not overlook your afflictions. At, at times you may wonder if he's there or if he cares, and he does. David says in Psalm 56, 8, you have kept count of my tossings. You ever stay up late at night just wrestling with whatever it may be, trying to resist sin or just can't escape haunting thoughts or regrets or whatever? You ever have those tossings at night? He says, you've kept count of every one of them. You put my tears in your bottle. You ever feel so alone when you cry? God saw every tear. Are they not all in your book? All are observed. And this text tells us that God will rid the universe of all that brings us pain. Death shall be no more. Mourning, no more. Crying, no more. Pain, no more. No more misunderstanding among friends. No more broken hearts. No more failed plans. No more wondering where your next meal is going to come from. No more haunting memories. No more chronic pain. No more withered loved ones on a deathbed. No more funerals. No more wombs left empty. No more tombs made full. Shame will be silenced. Regret will be removed. Failures will be forgotten. Hurts will be healed. Doubt will be done away with forevermore. Can you imagine what it will be like for God to welcome us to a land where you'll never even want to sin again? It just won't even cross your mind that you'll want to sin because you'll be glorified. That God will welcome us to a place where you'll never be sinned against again. To a place where God will look you and me in the face and say the former things have passed away. All that's gone, he says. Chapter 22, verse 3, there shall no longer be any curse because Christ was cursed on our behalf. 22.5, they shall no longer be any night, 
None of the evil threats from the old world will be allowed to plague God's people or hinder them from enjoying his presence. All our past sorrows shall be healed. All that makes future sorrows be in doubt will be eliminated. They shall be no more because our heavenly Father will wipe away the the tears of all of his children. That's promised for you if you're in Christ. In verses 5 through 7, God will make all things new. He will make all things new. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. The one with all authority here declares, behold, I am making all things new. He is calling all all who hear to listen and to receive and to believe this promise. Things as they are is not how things will always be. God will fix it. And this is so certain that God commands John here in verse 5, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He desires, hear this, God desires his word to be tested, to be proven, to be reviewed, and to be remembered by us so that our faith will be provoked and not lose heart. Reflecting on this promise provokes our perseverance in faith. That if this is true, you can keep trusting him. I can keep trusting him. If we believe the words that God has given us, it fuels faith. It helps us to resist the world, the flesh, and the devil, and all of the things that come at us every single day, to not be seduced by Babylon. He wants to guard us from being overtaken with doubt which will lead us to entertain temptation, to cower under opposition, to give in to the satanic whispers that lie to us and tell us that God's love and care and faithfulness just aren't true. God says, write it down, John. Put it in the book. Put it in the book, John. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to preserve it through the hands of many men and women for thousands of years so that one day in Alexandria, Virginia, there's going to be a bunch of people sitting around who need to hear that there's a God who's going to make everything new and they're going to hear about it, John. Write it down. Put it in a book. And in verse 6, he roots this promise in his character. He says, it is done which echoes even what Christ said on the cross. It is finished. He paid in full. Now we get to receive all of it. He says, I am the Alpha, which is the first letter in the Greek alphabet, and the Omega, the last letter, the beginning and the end. God wants us to hear this promise being tied to his character. He is assuring us that he is the initiator and the orchestrator and the finalizer of all things in human history. There is nothing that is outside of his control. 
And it's interesting here that though this vision is in the future from when John saw it, and even from when, when, when we're hearing about it, it is so certain to happen, it's presented as if it's already done. Finished. Bank on it. Bank everything on it. Now, I could spend all day on this. I'm going to give you one minute of something that was that's striking that I encourage you to go back and, and study later. But this, this opening section of Revelation chapter 21, and you see it kind of all the way through the 21 and 22, is filled with echoes of God's faithfulness to fulfill every one of his covenant promises that he has made. You remember God told Adam he's going to send a savior to crush the serpent's head? Well, that serpent has now, he's not here anymore because he's in the lake of fire. God proved true. God promised Noah that he, he will never flood the world with water again. He kept his promise, and then he did flood it with fire, which was a foreshadowing of that. He kept his promise. To Abraham, God promised land, offspring, and blessing, and said, I will be your God. Here we are in a new land filled with the offspring of God's uh, doing, under his blessing, and he is their God. He kept his promise to Abraham. The Mosaic promise, that this law that sets people apart as God's, uh, as God's people, reflecting his character so that he can dwell among them, happened. Leviticus 26, I will make my dwelling among you. I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. That's happening right here. They're set apart from all evil. They are with him. He is among them. God kept his promise to Moses. To David, 2 Samuel 7, he promised an eternal throne on which a king would reign and rule forevermore. From the throne, this word is coming. Again, the eternal one sitting on the throne promised to David, fulfilled. And the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, where he will remember our sins no more. Here, every tear is wiped away and every bit of mourning over our sin, gone and forgotten, forgiven. We are now with him forevermore. Every one of God's covenant promises are found here in Revelation 21 and 22. God keeps all his promises. And he says, write it down, John, because I'm a promise-making, promise-keeping God, and they need that. You need that, John. And he says here in verse 6, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. An allusion to Isaiah 55 where, where the prophet said, God says this through the prophet, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Through, through Isaiah here, there's allusion to it. God wants us to see there's an invitation to come and to dine with him. It's that Isaiah 25 passage that we began our service with where there's this rich feast where everybody's invited. Come get the good wine. Come get the rich food. Come, 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 he says. You got, I got no money. He says, you don't even need money. I'm paying for this one. He's like, I'm not good enough to be there. I didn't invite you because you're good enough. This is a banquet of grace that we're invited to. And I think God also wants us to see here that we will not be ultimately satisfied with anything other than him and what he offers. Listen, if you're here this morning and, and you're, you're not a Christian, or maybe you are a Christian and you're just really struggling with sin, I want you to know that what you're searching for 
is God. Only he can satisfy you. An author said this, he says, even, even the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. Meaning when you're going after sin, what you're looking for is, is something to satisfy you, something to fulfill you. God wants you to know, I am that. And what sin and temptation does, it offers counterfeit joys which will never satisfy he says, come eat from me. Drink from what I give. I'm what you're looking for. Every sin leaves you lacking. Every sorrow leaves you aching. And even every good thing is intended to be a signpost to point us toward the ultimate thing, which is here in this text. And in verse 7, he brings us back to the promise that has been laid before us this entire book. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. God here calls us to, by faith, join ourselves with Jesus. Jesus is the conquering one who defeated sin, Satan, and death through his resurrection, through his crucifixion, through his resurrection, and through his soon return. He is the conqueror, and we conquer by joining with him in faith and resisting all of the things that call us away from him. He says, conquer by clinging to Christ who conquered for you. Which, by the way, it is such a gracious thing of God to take us into the future and to show us the end and allow us to now live in light of that. Just, just think of if, if you knew what 2020 held in January, the things you could have done differently, right? Bought Zoom stock, whatever is in your mind. There's all kinds of things that you could have done differently that would have altered, right? The Lord says, let me tell you what the end is like, and I want you to go back to where you are today and see everything that comes at you, every temptation, every bit of persecution, every pain, every suffering, every misunderstanding, every disorienting thing, always let this be what you know is true because everything around you is gonna confuse you. But God says, write it down. This is true, keep following Christ. He concludes this section of verse 8 by a sobering reminder to resist sin. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We talked about this second death a few weeks ago. If you weren't here for that, I encourage you to listen to chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Most of these sins we have talked about throughout this book, these are the many things that continually cry out to us to, to forsake Christ. He's saying those whose lives are marked by these sorts of things and the willful rejection of Christ, they will not inherit all of this goodness. Rather, they will be under his judgment forever. I do want to say one thing about one of these sins. Do you notice the first thing to be thrown into the lake of fire? 
cowardliness. I don't know about you, but I, I think one of the things I most often fear or feel is fear in regards to my, my, my disobedience toward the Lord or temptation toward it. Fear is so often there. What's somebody going to think about me? What happens if I confess this sin? What happens if I do share the gospel with this person? What if, what if, what if, and we live in fear? Cowardliness is a sin. Now, again, we can struggle with that as believers, but we must say, Lord, help me to be courageous. Fill me with your spirit. Give me strength to not be afraid of what man can do to you, but to cling to him. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus perfectly avoided all of these sins. He was never cowardly, but always courageous. He was never faithless, but he was always faithful. He was never detestable, but always holy. He was never sexually immoral, but he always avoided temptation and always dealt with women and men in love. He was never a sorcerer, but relied upon the Holy Spirit to glorify God. He was no idolater, but he honored God the Father in, with every word, action, and deed. And he was no liar. He always spoke the truth in love. And the good news is that he shed his blood so that all of these things that mark us in this room in one way or another can be forgiven. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice sexu uh, homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. The good news of the gospel <laughs> is not that everybody who gets this new heaven and new earth deserves it. The good news of the gospel is that nobody deserves it. If, anybody's, if heaven's filled with people who are good, Jesus is the only one who's there. He's the only man who's ever been perfect. But in him, we can be forgiven, washed, cleansed, and helped in our resisting of sin so that we can persevere and receive this glorious day. Which leaves us with two simple brief applications. The first is to cultivate holiness because you love Jesus. Cultivate holiness because you love Jesus. Let the image of the bride, being a bride of Christ, affect you. Don't just see resisting of sin as keeping the right rules and staying out of trouble, but see active obedience and active resisting of sin as a way of purifying yourself for that day when you're going to stand before him, making yourself ready for him. I encourage you to read later 2 Peter chapter 3, 11 through 13. 2 Peter 3, 11 through 13 will give you more on this. The other thing which is clear from the text, as that one was, is that we should cultivate hopefulness in being with Jesus. Cultivate hopefulness in being with Jesus. I think everybody in this room would, would love to go be with him now in one way or another. I, I pray that's our heart. But until then, 
we should have our hearts set on being there and that being our chief aim, and it helps put everything else, both joys and sorrows, in their proper place. It frees us from needing things to work too much. It, it, it frees us from when things don't go our way, devastating us. It, it liberates you when your hope is in the right place. Let's close with this promise from Jesus. John 14, he said, Let, your, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Come, Lord Jesus.